love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, down, down And the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire I went down, 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 and the flames went higher, and it burns, 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 the ring of fire, the ring of fire. The taste of love is sweet, when hearts like ours meet. I fell for you like a child. But the fire went wild I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, down, down And the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, down, down And the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire The ring of fire The ring of fire Why, hello there. If I were you, you might want to pull up a chair. Going to be kind of a rambling deal going on here today. What am I going to be talking about? Well, I'd like to eventually be talking about the way they tricked us using all the mind tricks that we all agreed to along the way. But before we get there, there's many other things that I want to talk about today. For example, I've been thinking a lot about death, you know, as in dying. I think a lot of this had to do with um, they needed for us to be convinced that this life was all we had, which would mean that the circle of life would end when this life here ends, right? So I think that implanting in our brains was a pretty significant thing because that gave them all the power, right? Because if we start thinking we're going to die and dying is a bad thing, wouldn't that rush us right into their arms? For example, you think you're dying. Where do you go? Will you go to a doctor? Well, maybe the doctor is the reason that you're actually dying. See what I mean? So I think this idea that we have as far as that this place is all there is was a pretty significant trick here because it made us cling to them and cling to the system here that they created. Because I've been thinking a lot about the caste system. 
For example, in the caste system they set up in India, the Brahmins are the ones at the top. They consider those the gods. Who do these people look like? Well, not that hard to figure out who's at the top, right? Just take a look at their pictures. Go over to the website, Psychopath in Your Life. I put up a new section called Hiding in Plain Sight Elite Transgenders. Look at those shows. They're very interesting to watch them in order of like, let's say, the um, First Ladies of the United States as an example. Look at all the pictures there. Every one of those people are really in their wrong sex. They're all lying about who they are. The men are all women and the women are all men. Learn to study them. Look at their ugly faces and see what you can see. Look at those chins. Look at their necks. How long has this deception been going on? Well, for a very long time. It's about time we open our eyes up, kids. Open those eyes up. So yeah, so they have themselves at the top of the caste system. What has been their method of operation? Well, I would say that fire and explosions are their methods of keeping us in line. And today, I will also be talking about how they have been setting food facilities on fire how they have been able to effectively control seeds, you know, the seeds of things people plant for food, how that has been controlled, how um, fertilizer actually works and why that's going to be a huge ordeal. And what's also interesting is that Ukraine actually was the site of a starvation themselves. And I have reason to believe and to think that Ukraine is going to be a very significant deal here. They keep talking about the Third World War, right? Love those threes, right? Ukraine is essentially going to be playing a very significant role in starving out some of the most vulnerable countries of all. Why do I say this? Well, because I've got some pretty good information here to take a look at today. Also, for example, did you know we have this thing called the Rome Statue that controls the criminality of these people? Interesting, who is under the auspices? It's run by the United Nations. Who is under the Rome deal? In other words, Will anybody get punished for causing eugenics on the rest of the world? Well, you might want to tune in to keep listening because not everybody has agreed to this Rome statue. So all this talk about somebody's going to be punished, well, just be careful what you're thinking because they have a way of carving out laws for us and laws for them. And then I will also, because the push is almost full-time transgender talk, at least in this country here, transgender talk about the children, all this talk about puberty blockers, they make it sound like, ah, not a big deal, just put them on these puberty blockers, when we sort this out in the future, things will be okay, they'll revert back to normal. No, nothing is normal in any of this. It is called eugenics for a reason, also known as mutilation, mutilating people, okay? So those will be things that I'll be talking about today. So pull up a chair. You might want to take a nap in between, and I hope you'll learn some new things today, and 
if I've said it right, you walk away with more questions than I have answers because that's what looking takes. Looking should come up with many more questions than we have answers. And there's a lot to cover today. So pull up a chair and hang on. talk about genocide by starvation. As it turns out, supposedly Ukraine has a history of famine. It's called the Holodomor. H-O-L-O-D-O-M-O-R. It means terror famine or the great famine is what it's called. In the Soviet Ukraine from 1932 to 1933, there was a famine, and they called it Soviet Ukraine at the time, that killed millions of Ukrainians. The Holdermar famine was part of the wider Soviet famine of 1932 to 1933, which affected the major grain-producing areas of the country. Ukraine was one of the largest grain-producing states in the USSR and as a result was hit particularly hard by the famine. Early estimates of the death toll by scholars and government officials vary greatly. A joint statement to the United Nations signed by 25 countries in 2003 declared that 7 to 10 million died. However, current scholarships estimates a range significantly lower with 3 to 5 million victims died from that famine. The famine's widespread impact on Ukraine persists to this day. The scholars said that whether or not the Holdrum was genocide is still the subject of legal and academic debate. While historians universally agree that the cause of the famine was man-made, the intentionality of the deaths remains in question. That's funny, they say it's man-made, but the intentions are in question. Okay. Some historians conclude that the famine was planned and exasperated by Joseph Stalin to eliminate a, Ukraini a Ukrainian independence movement. Others suggest that the famine arose because of rapid Soviet industrialization and collectivization of agriculture. Since 2006, the Holodrom has been recognized by Ukraine alongside 15 other countries as a genocide against the Ukrainian people carried out by the Soviet government. They have quite a history, don't they, between Russia and the Ukrainians. So it said 1932-33 millions died in the Ukraine. The country was hit by the Holdermore, a famine so terrible that for the people caught in the middle of it, 
seeing an emaciated body collapse on the side of the road had become an everyday sight. The country became a living nightmare, a place where thousands of starving people had turned to cannibalism to survive. And yet in the news outside of the Ukraine, newspapers denied it was even happening. The Ukrainians called the famine the Holdermore, a name that means murder through starvation. The Holdermore, they believe, wasn't just a natural disaster, it was deliberately planned to starve them out. Soviet leader Joseph Stalin had been warned that the country would be hit with a famine two years before the Holdermen started, but he did little to stop it from ha happening. He was bent on industrializing the Soviet Union. Even with a famine coming, he kept moving workers into the city and out of the farms of the countryside. Funny how that works, right? When the Ukraine famine started, Stalin actively made things worse. He exported almost 2 million tons of food out of Ukraine pulling away the little food the people had to survive. Then he barred the people there from moving to any other part of the country. They had no food, they had no way to escape, nothing to do but wait and die. People did what they had to do to survive. Men became thieves, women became prostitutes, and countless people did things far worse. Some turned to cannibalism. Life during the Holdermore was so harsh that 2,500 people were arrested and convicted for eating their neighbor's flesh. The problem was so widespread that the Soviet government put up signs reminding the survivors to, that to eat your own children is a barbarian act. It seems impossible to throw a blind eye to these horrors, but Stalin barely acknowledged that anyone in the Soviet Union was hungry at all. He denied that the Ukraine famine was happening for years. The cover-up just didn't happen in the USSR. The New York Times published long articles calling the Ukraine famine mostly bunk, once quipping, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. The man writing them, Walter Durante, had seen the horrors of the holodrum firsthand, but he'd been pressured into silence and lies. For an article that covered up a genocide, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. Huh, funny, huh? Obama got the Nobel Peace Prize for um, when he got into president before he went and blew up Yemen. They love those prizes, don't they? Okay, let me see here. Today, there's no question the Ukraine famine really happened. The only thing it in question is the specifics. Nobody knows for sure how many people died. The lowest guesses put the number at 2 million, while others rise well over 10 million dead. For holodome deniers, the exact number has become a fierce question of debate. But when millions of people die, does the number of millions really change whether it was a tragedy? 
whatever petty details we can debate, there is no question that the, Ukraine went, the Ukrainians went through a horror unlike we can imagine. Over two years, millions of people died in the worst way possible by slowly starving to death and watching their neighbors turn to cannibalism. It is also a fact that the people in power actively went out of their way not to help. So that is what happened in Ukraine in the 1932-1933 time frame. Do I believe it? Yeah, I'm not going to deny it. I believe it is more than likely true. I think we can take some lessons from this. They're actively trying to starve us to death. That's the lesson I take from this. What lesson do you take from this? It looks to me like they are one-trick ponies. Also looks to me like Ukraine was the country that was the country that was starved and now Ukraine will have a hand in starving out other countries because they're withholding shipping out any grains from this event to the other starving countries. So, kind of runs full circle, right? The Holodomor, the starvation of called terror and famine or the Great Famine in Ukraine. talk about fertilizer. I was kind of confused and in case you're not confused you might want to skip past this section because I was not aware of exactly what fertilizer was. Obviously I knew that it made plants grow more but that was about it and all this talk about well this country's got fertilizer that country doesn't have fertilizer so I went looking to learn a little bit more about fertilizer. A fertilizer is any material or natural or synthetic origin that is applied to soil or to plant tissues to supply plant nutrients. So, um, for most agriculture processes, fertilizer focuses on three main macronutrients. Nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium with additional things for some other nutrients. Farmers apply these fertilizers in a variety of ways through dry or pelletized or liquid application processes using large agricultural equipment or hand tool methods. Historically, fertilizer came from natural or organic sources, excuse me, and you know, they could have dealt with fertilizer if they, if they rotated crops, but that doesn't necessarily happen. Starting in the 19th century, after innovations in plant nutrition, an agricultural industry developed around synthetically created fertilizers. Funny, that happened around the 19th century. Huh, kind of like when they first developed this whole trick or what? The transition was important in transforming the global food system, allowing for larger scale industrial agriculture with large crop yields. But how this all gets started? Well, all roads seem to lead back to Germany now, don't they? 
it is done with a process called the Haber, H-A-B-E-R process, at the beginning of the 20th century, amplified the production capacity. Uh, so it led to a boom after World War II using nitrogen fertilizers. Okay, so the Haber process, also called the Haber-Bosch process, is an artificial nitrogen fixation process and is the main industrial procedure for the production of ammonia today, okay? It is named after its inventors, the German chemist Fritz Haber and Karl Bosch, who developed it in the first decade of the 20th century. The process converts atmospheric nitrogen to ammonia by a reaction with hydrogen using a metal catalyst. Phew! That was a lot for my brain. Before the development of the Haber process, ammonia had been difficult to produce on an industrial scale. So that's about all we need to know about fertilizer. So um, although the Haber process is mainly used to produce fertilizer today, during World War I, it provided Germany with a source of ammonia for the production of explosives compensating for the Allied Powers trade blockade. Yes, they learned all those explosives, didn't they? We used to say they were earthquakes, and now I think they were probably just explosives. In the latter half of the 20th century, increased use of nitrogen fertilizers. There was an 800% increase between 1961 and 2019. Have been a crucial component of the increased productivity of conventional food systems. So, this is a really, really huge, huge deal because without extra crops from the fertilizer, there won't be food for people in very poor countries who are going to be depending on all of this. Okay, so we have the... Um, there's also phosphate fertilizers they get from this phosphate rock and, and potassium fertilizers. The one that is in demand and seems to be the most expensive is the um, one that's made with fuel. Because this year they are saying that farmers in the United States will be planting more soybeans than corn this year. What does that mean? It means for the first time, the third time in recorded history, farmers will be planting more soybean than corn as they grapple with the rising cost of fertilizer. So the fertilizer they use for corn is the one that requires the um, petroleum products. So that's why they may switch to soybean. What does this all mean? Well. I don't really know yet, but I think that what it could mean is that over 80-90% of our products contain corn as a byproduct. High fructose corn syrup comes from there. Petroleum products are also made with corn. Corn is a pretty big deal that they use that to feed most all livestock in this country gets fed corn. So they raise the price of corn because they can't get the fertilizer and you can start to see where this all goes.
higher and higher prices because most of our food system is actually based on corn. So even if they do plant more soybean, the price of things will escalate because of the corn factor. What is another big factor? Well, I would argue that fire is another big factor, going to be a way to starve people out in eugenics. As of right now, the United States has had more fires and explosions around food processing than any time in history. I don't know about you, but it seemed mighty suspicious to me because I first ran into this fire at this place called the Winston Fertilizer Factory. And that got me looking into fertilizer. Well, it was a big factory fire and took out the whole place. And what, what could have made it a lot more dangerous was all of this nitrogen, the stuff they used for the fertilizer. Those people were pretty lucky because that did not also explode, but it did take out that entire huge fertilizer plant called the Winston Fertilizer. And in Winston-Salem, it's the Weaver Family Fertilizer Plant. It had been in existence since the late 1800s. What I think, think because I don't know this for a fact, I think people are just now blowing these places up to not only starve us out, but to collect the insurance money. Always got the money to come with the fires, right? Because I was reading this story. It said, since the beginning of the year, there have been several large food processing facilities that have exploded or burned to the ground across the United States. This week alone, a vegetable and nut processing facility in Dufour, Oregon, became engulfed in flames for unknown reasons. Lights flickered. They heard a pop and went there to check check it out, and there was a fire, according to a report to the local sheriff's department. The independent distributor of natural, organic, and non-GMO foods, which employed around 150 people, burned to the ground, and they have no idea how it all happened. Just a week before that, fire in Oregon. A massive fire brought down a meat processing plant in Conway, New Hampshire. After burning for 16 hours, multiple fire crews finally put out the fire, but the facility is completely destroyed. That same week in Salinas, California, a massive fire at the Taylor Farms processing facility led to the evacuation of residents as it burned for over 17 hours. Taylor Farms is a major agriculture company that processes and delivers many of the salad kits seen in grocery stores. The cause of this fire is currently under investigation. Just weeks before that, a massive fire engulfed a Walmart distribution center in Plainfield, Indiana, where over 1,000 employees shipped food and other supplies all over the region. The fire destroyed the massive 1 million square foot operation. That same week, one of the largest food facilities of its kind in South Texas caught fire and burned to the ground. Prior to burning down, the Rio Fresh facility in San Juan, Texas grew 
packed and shipped a variety of Texas-grown items, including sweet onions, melons, greens, cabbage, and kale. The cause of that fire is currently unknown. In Hermstein, Oregon in February, a massive food processing plant suddenly exploded, injuring seven of the nearly 400 employees who work at the Shears food plant. According to reports, the cause of the explosion, which originated near a boiler, is still under investigation. It's not just the food production and distribution plants either. In Maricopa, Arizona, in March, a massive fire wiped out the Maricopa Food Pantry, which distributes food to the less fortunate. More than 50,000 pounds of food was destroyed in the blaze that lasted for 24 hours. That fire is also under investigation. The fact is that since last year, more than a dozen of these fires and explosions have taken place at food processing and distribution places. Yeah, so um, that is the scope between fires, food, and their plan for starving us out. It doesn't get much better than that, right? I just have a quick list here of where's fertilizer made. Okay, few big plants. Haifa Group, established 1966. Israel, huge, huge fertilizer operation there. We have a big one here in Indiana, the United States, established 1967. Um, Israel has another one. Canada has a big one. Chile has a big one. Russia and Norway, and I think that's about it. And I will also be playing after this clip. I'm glad I scroll down here. Let me finish this up here. Um, oh, this is good to know. Um, according to the USDA, wheat, corn, and rice received about 40% of the nitrogen, phosphate, and potash fertilizers in 2020. Corn and wheat were the two most important cereals among them, receiving an ample amount of fertilizer. Fertilizers used on corn, wheat, and rice need to contain nitrogen sufficiency. So, um, yeah, they need that nitrogen. Um, U.S. planting up corn, which requires more fertilizer than soybeans, could be limited in 2020 by surging prices for inputs. A shortage of nitrogen fertilizer due to soaring national gas prices is threatening to reduce global crop yields next year. So, look for big issues with crops. And we're going to be playing a clip right now because I kind of knew that the uh, big business here controlled the production of seeds. You know, seeds like we use to produce plants and crops and things that we eat. And I only had a vague idea in the back of my head about how they controlled seeds and farmers and our food production. So what I found was a pretty good clip that will explain to us why farmers can't legally replant 
their own seeds. And essentially, it will explain to us what the deal is with control food and seeds. This is really a big deal. I mean, they really have this thing wrapped up into quite a little tight bundle here, right? Because between burning things down, controlling the seeds, and limiting distribution to some very poor countries, we're looking at, they talk about, you know, getting rid of a certain portion of the population. Well, that is pretty easy to see that that can be done here with a couple of things. One, play with the fertilizer and also the seeds to produce this stuff from. So we'll play the clip right now. The other day I was picking seeds out of a tomato, which is what I do in my free time, and I was like, man, there are more than 200 seeds in here. This farming stuff is for chumps. If I planted these 200 seeds, I would get 200 tomatoes. And if I planted the seeds from those tomatoes, I would have 4,000 tomatoes. Do that four more times and I'd have 320 billion tomatoes. Sell each of those tomatoes for $10 at the farmer's market and boom, I'm a trillionaire. But then I learned that there was one little hiccup with my plan. Farmers don't replant their own seeds anymore. They just throw them out. Why? Well, according to the official manual for defending billion dollar agriculture companies, saving seeds leads to all sorts of crazy problems like reduced crop yield, susceptibility to disease, and quote, you getting dumped by your girlfriend for using seeds every year like a dirty loser farmer instead of buying Monsanto's new tricked out seeds with all the latest features. But I'm not sure that's a reliable source since the last 80 pages are just the words maniacal laughter over and over again. In truth, there are some practical disadvantages to saving seeds, but the real reason farmers stopped doing it after thousands of years is that a couple of companies figured out a way to make replanting your own seeds illegal almost anywhere in the world. How do they do it? Well, it's a little complicated. You see, saving and replanting seeds has been an important part of farming ever since farming was discovered by William von Farming, pictured here. But that practice got more complicated in the 1930s when we decided to invent inventing plants. Of course, humans have been cultivating new breeds of plants for as long as we've been growing them, but there was one huge problem with that no one had gotten filthy rich off of it yet. So, in the 1930s, the US federal government passed the Plant Patent Act, and for the first time anywhere in the world, people could legally claim that a plant was their intellectual property. Of course, this didn't apply to naturally occurring plants. You couldn't just walk outside in 1930 and claim that grass was your idea. God filed that patent 55 million years ago. To patent a plant, at least in the United States, you have to prove that you cultivated a distinct new variety of plant and are capable of making more of it. Just as an example, here's the patent for plums. It says plum and has a picture of a plum. I don't know what more you would need. Now, at first, this patent law didn't really affect the way that farmers farmed. Up until the 90s, there were only 120 patented plants, and farmers didn't generally grow or harvest them. But that all changed when a little mom-and-pop industrial chemical manufacturer called Monsanto had the wise idea to shift their business model from selling plant poison to selling plants that couldn't be killed by their own plant poison. These Roundup-ready crops, mostly soybeans and corn, quickly took over nearly every farm in the US and many more around the world because it turns out that not dying from weeds or weed killer is an important trait for crops to have. And Monsanto's not the only one. A massive proportion of crops we eat were invented and patented by some company designed to be more reliable or more resilient than other breeds. But here's the kicker. Growing a patented plant is, legally, the same thing as manufacturing any other patented product. It's like a restaurant making a Big Mac or a factory making a Rick and Morty body pillow. Basically, these companies decide who can make their product and exactly how much of it they can make. 
Anytime a farmer wants to grow a patented plant, they need to sign a contract saying they'll only grow the seeds they've purchased, and they won't replant or give away the next generation of seeds. It's kind of like if your can of Pepsi magically refilled with Pepsi after you were done drinking it, and then Pepsi was like, hey, what the hell, you can't drink that, you have to throw that out and buy a brand new can of Pepsi, especially because you're the only person on earth who intentionally buys cans of Pepsi. And even though these patents are mostly held in the US and Europe, Article something of the thingy accord means you can't replant patented seeds in any of these countries, so unless you're trying to get rich growing genetically modified beets in Eritrea, you're pretty much screwed. But Sam, you might be saying, if this is such a big problem for farmers, why don't they just grow non-patented plants? I'm a stupid loser and the only way I can make myself feel better is by sowing dissent in your comments section. Well, setting aside the fact that it's pretty hard to keep your farm afloat with corn that dies when you look at it the wrong way, there's also the worry that you might end up growing patented plants by accident. After all, farms accidentally cross-pollinate nearby farms all the time, and it's hard to know how much of that pollen has a big scary contract on it. That is, of course, unless you're one of the hundreds of private investigators that these seed companies hire to spy on farms and look for people to drop lawsuits on. Now, this accidental patent infringement stuff is a thing that organic farmers seem to worry about a lot, and some even sued Monsanto because of the possibility that it could happen, but there don't really seem to be too many cases of seed companies cracking down on unsuspecting farmers. There was this one guy in Canada who got sued and claimed it was an accident, but it turns out his field was 95% Monsanto canola, so I don't know about that one. Look, sorry, but someone has to defend these giant corporations, okay? I mean, someone besides their hundreds of lawyers. Now, even though this racket might have ruined my tomato scheme, here's the silver lining. Patents don't last forever, unless you're Disney. In fact, some of Monsanto's earliest patents, like their soybeans, have already expired and opened farmers up to sell, plant, and replant old Monsanto seeds without the seed cops breathing down their necks. But that is, of course, not the end of this story. This is a really complicated topic with a lot of far-reaching implications. And as the purveyor of the internet's finest six-minute joke-riddled half-explainers, I might not be the best person to get into the nitty-gritty. people speaking out against um, what's going on in Ukraine right now, and they're saying things like, well, they've got to be punished if anybody gets harm, meaning punishing Russia for any harm being done in Ukraine. Well, let's take a little bit closer look at Ukraine. Ukraine has a lot of things going on. Ukraine is likely going to aid in starving the most vulnerable because many countries are big grain importers from Ukraine. For example, Lebanon imports more than 50% of its wheat from Ukraine. For Yemen, the proportion is about 22%. In Tunisia, 42%. Egypt, Syria, Algeria, Morocco, and Sudan are also heavily reliant on grain imports from Russia and Ukraine. Somebody was quoted as saying, naturally, the effects are felt most in countries already struggling with food insecurities and food inflation, like Yemen, Syria, and Lebanon. High level of food insecurity also prevail in Syria, Arab Republic, and I don't know why they said Lebanon again, but they concerned about Lebanon. Parts of East Africa, where the fourth consecutive dry season is looming. 
It is now estimated that the numbers of food insecure will increase. So lots of people needing food in lots of areas like Afghanistan and all over the different area over there, including Haiti. What are they saying about all this stuff? Well, it always pays to take a look, right? Human rights lawyer, Amal Clooney, a tall man, thin man with a wig on, just said last week, and that would be in this May of 2022, urged the United Nations to hold Russia accountable for the alleged war crimes it has committed in Ukraine. So Amal Clooney wants her friends at the United Nations to take care of Russia for what they have been doing in Ukraine. She went on to say, Ukraine is today a slaughterhouse right in the heart of Europe, Clooney said, during an informal UN Security Council meeting in New York. Clooney is part of an international task force that is advising Ukraine on its legal options amid Russia's military invasion now in its third month. Well, I listened to her speech, very impressive of course, and maybe she should have included the Rome statue. What's the Rome statue? Well, the Rome statue of the International Criminal Court. Something you might want to take a look at for yourself. What is it? Well, the Rome statue of the International Criminal Court is the treaty that established the International Criminal Court. It was adopted as a diplomatic conference in Rome on the 17th of July, 1998. And it entered into force on the 1st of July, 2002. The Rome Statue of the International Criminal Court. It says, as of May 13, 2013, 122 states will be party to the statue. Among other things, the statue establishes the court's functions, jurisdictions, and structure. If you haven't been paying attention, you might want to take a look. When they talk about the New World Order, I believe they're referring to the United Nations, who literally has a group of functioning for everything that has to do. So this Rome statue comes under them. It was established, it established four core international crimes that's looking at genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and the crime of aggression. It went on to say, those crimes shall not be subject to any statute of limitations. A lot of time, these laws and things are subject to statutes of limitation, meaning that eventually it runs out. But in this case, these crimes would be able to be prosecuted forever because they have no statute of limitation. So under the Rome statute, the ICC, International Criminal Court, can only investigate and prosecute the four core international crimes in situations where states are unable or unwilling to do so themselves. So they can step in if these member states do not want to do this on their own. 
The court has jurisdiction over crimes only if they are committed in the territory of a state party or if they are committed by a national by a national of a state party. An exception to this rule is that the ICC may have jurisdiction over crimes if its jurisdiction is authorized by the United Security Council. So they seem to me that they have quite a lot of power. So, okay, so who are these people? Well, interesting group, right? Over at the website, Psychopath in Your Life, you will find a tab that says show notes. Under the show notes, I will have maps of these statues. I'll have all the details you might want to take a look for. So what is the Rome statue? Well, it includes a lot of countries that have agreed to be party of this, okay? But a few countries are missing from this Rome statue that didn't seem to get mentioned. Who are those three countries? Well, they would be the United States. They would also be China. They would also be Russia. Our non-party, non, oh, excuse me, they were signatory. In other words, they signed for it and then they um, withdrew their signature. So, they're talking about punishing countries, but I have to ask the countries they're talking about punishing are the ones that are in fact appearing to be doing these crimes against humanity, right? Genocide being done by the United States, being done by China, being done by Russia. Well, this is how it works, right? They set up the laws and they make sure the laws don't include what they're particularly up to. So this all sounds great, doesn't it? They're going to go after Russia for any crimes in Ukraine. Well, too bad the people doing the crimes are not part of this treaty. Okay, let's talk about the Nazis raising their heads in Ukraine. It is called the Azov, A-Z-O-V, Special Operations Detachment. It is also known as the Azov Regiment or the Azov Battalion. Until September of 2014, it's a neo-Nazi unit of the National Guard of Ukraine based in Maripol in the coastal region of the Sea of Azov, A-Z-O-V. Azov formed as a voluntary paramilitary militia in May of 2014 and has since been fighting Russian forces in the Donbass War. It first saw combat recapturing Maripol from Russian forces and pro-Russian separatists in June of 2014. It initially operated as a volunteer police company until it was formally incorporated into the National Guard 
on the 11th of November in 2014. So it is officially part of their military, this ASOV group. In the wake of the 2020 Russian invasion of Ukraine, the battalion gained renewed attention for its use by Russia in justifying the invasion and during the siege of Maripol for its role in the defense of the city. The battalion drew controversy over allegations of torture and war crimes, as well as association with neo-Nazi ideology. Azov uses controversial symbols, including the Wolf's Angel insignia, it's used by divisions of the Waffle SS and the Warmark during World War II. It is the Wolf Angel, okay? The Wolf Angel was the emblem of the Dutch Nazis. It was used then as a hate symbol. Modern neo-Nazis use it as a symbol of resistance. It is one of the most common neo-Nazi symbols and is widely used by the far right in various countries as an indicator of Nazi, neo-Nazi, and racist views. I will have some picture of the wolf, Wolf's Angel over at the website. It's very interesting because it looks like two lightning bolts and when the people with the SS used it during the Nazi era, that was their special police, who I believe originated here in the United States, but you'll have to go back a few months ago when I did that show about the SS and the Nazis and all that. But yeah, this, this, this logo, the Wolf's Angels, these two lightning bolt looking things, that also makes up the actual Nazi symbol. That same symbol that the um, people in India see as a sign of peace. And also, I'll have a picture there of the German Iron Cross, which was also worn during that era. So this is interesting that right now in Ukraine, they're talking about the Third World War. And you know what freaks they are for these numbers, right? They're talking about the Third World War. They're bringing up Nazi symbolism, this Wolf Saint Angel deal. And I have more questions than, frankly, I have answers because I don't know why, okay? The Wolf's Angel is an ancient runic symbol that was believed to be able to ward off wolves, okay? Historically, it appeared in Germany in many places, ranging from guidestones to the sides of buildings. So, or it's called a crampon. It's a heraldic charge from Germany and east of France, inspired by medieval wolf traps that consisted of a Z-shaped metal hook hung by a chain from a metal bar. The stylized version focuses on the Z shape and can include a bar through the center. Such symbols are still found in a number of municipal coats of arms in Germany. The symbol itself bears a visual resemblance to the Elahaz ruin, 
historically part of the runic alphabet. So other names include Wolf Sanker, Wolf Seeger, as well as Hammercon and the Loop. A half moon shape and a ring. Yeah, it has a uh, found as a mason's mark in medieval stoneware. So yeah, funny how it happens to come from Germany, right? Funny, 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 it comes from Germany. Yeah, I'll have a bunch of symbols over there for you to take a look at because symbols mean everything to these people, right? So what does this mean? I don't know. It starts with a Z, right? The shape of a Z. What's that little woman in Ukraine's name? Zelensky? Zelensky. We got a guy in, well, a woman in running Ukraine, and she has a Z for a name. They're talking about World War III. What does that all mean? They brought out the Wolf's Angel emblem. What does that mean? I do not know, but I do know that it does mean something. Okay, let's talk about what the plan is for the children. In the United States, the Assistant Secretary of Health, Rachel Levine, is the highest ranking transgender person in the United States government. Well, <laughs> that they tell us about, right? She is joining a staff of all other transgender people. See how the game is played? point out one of them and say, oh, look, this person's transgender, when in reality, they are all transgender, okay? The entire system is full of them and only them. She claimed, or he claimed, we'll call her as she, just to be polite here. She claimed during a recent interview with NPR that there is no argument about gender-affirming care among pediatricians and doctors who specialize in adolescents. They're all in agreement. Levine made the comments during a Saturday speech at Texas Christian University in which Levine blamed the high rate of suicide ideation among transgender identifying youth in part on harassment, scapegoating, and intentional abuse. The language of medicine and science is being used to divide, to drive people to suicide, Levine also claimed. They have this argument. They say, do you want a dead child or a happy child? Yep, that's what they tell them. Levine goes on to say, there is no argument among medical professionals, pediatricians, pediatric endocrinologists, Adolescent medicine physicians, adolescent psychiatrists, psychologists about the value and the importance of gender-affirming care. According to definitions laid out in a fact sheet from Levine's Department of Health and Human Services in March, gender-affirming care includes social affirmation at any age, 
puberty blockers during puberty and hormone therapy starting during early adolescence. Irrever irreversible surgery is typically used in adult head, adulthood or case-by-case -case basis in adolescence, according to the agency. So they're claiming that the more drastic surgeries don't happen until they become adults, but the facts are the facts. They're being, being done when they are children. First step, what they do is they want to delay or temporarily suspend puberty. It is a medical treatment for children whose puberty started abnormally early. They call it precocious puberty. Puberty blockers are also commonly used for children with idiopathic short stature, in other words, children who are short. So what they say is that these drugs can also be used to promote the development of long bones and increase the adult height. In adults, the same drugs are used to treat these other things like prostate cancer, okay? So the same drug that children are getting to stop or stall their puberty are also given to people who have prostate cancer, okay? They say that puberty blockers prevent the development of secondary um, sex characteristics. They slow the growth of sexual organs and production of hormones. Other effects include the suppression of male features of facial hair, deep voices, and Adam's apples, and the halting of female features of breast development and menstruation. Puberty blockers are sometimes prescribed to young transgender people to temporarily halt the development of secondary sex characteristics. Puberty blockers allow patients more time to solidify their gender identity without developing secondary sex char characteristics. If a child later decides not to transition to another gender, the medication can be stopped allowing puberty to proceed. Little is known about the long-term side effects of hormone or puberty blockers in children with gender dysphoria. Although puberty blockers are known to be safe in physically reversible treatment, if the factors like bone mineral density, brain development, and fertility in transgender, oh, they're saying that um, it is, excuse me, it is not known whether hormone blockers affect the development of these things. They, they're saying they don't know if it affects the bones, the brain, or the fertility. Well, I'm not a genius, and I'm certainly not one of them. I've got, not gone to one of their schools. But I'm here to tell you these blockers do all of those things, okay? They claim that puberty blockers give transgender youth a smoother transition into their desired gender identity as an adult. Well, these issues like bone density being bad, brain development, and fertility are huge issues when you start giving children pills to mess with their genetics.
So, um, yeah, they say this is given as an implant or an injection to stop the puberty. And what do they use for this? Well, remember I just told you that they think this isn't bad for them, but they also seem to think it's a good idea. Well, the most common pill, or excuse me, injection they use is this thing called Leopritin. It's also known as Lupron, L-U-P-R-O-N. That's how we're, we're going to be calling it. They usually will give this monthly to suppress the puberty. Okay, this is the one that all of these kids get. Male or female, they get this Lupron. Well, let me tell you a little story about this girl named Cherise Derricott. She was 30 years old. She had no idea why her body seemed to be failing. At 21, a surgeon had replaced her deteriorated jaw joint. She'd been diagnosed with degenerate disc disease and fibromyalgia, a chronic pain condition. Her teeth are shedding enamel and cracking. None of it made sense to her until she discovered a community of women online who described similar symptoms and they all have one thing in common. All had taken a drug called Lupron. Thousands of parents choose to inject their daughters with the drug which was approved to shut down puberty in young girls but also is commonly used off-label to help short kids grow taller. The drug's pediatric version comes with few warnings about long-term side effects. It is also used in adults to fight prostate cancer or relieve uterine pain and the Food and Drug Administration has warnings on the drug's adult labels about a variety of side effects. More than 10,000 adverse events reports filled with the FDA reflect the experiences of women who've taken Lupron. The reports describe everything from brittle bones to faulty joints. In interviews and in online forums, Women who took the drug as young girls or initiated a daughter's treatment described harsh side effects that have been well documented in adults. Funny how they disclose that there were problems with the adults but not a problem with the kids. What they did with Lupron, which they do with all of these drugs, is it was developed for these other things and they use, they, it became a secondary drug, meaning that off-label. So it was developed for prostate cancer and this other thing, but doctors just start prescribing it to girls, and also boys, but I'm just talking about the girls now, to do these other things, okay? And it's amazing to me that they identify as side effects in the adults, but they seem to be dumbfounded that the girls are getting this. Women who used Lupron a decade or more ago to delay puberty or grow taller described the short-term side effects listed on the pediatric label. They had pain at the injection site, mood swings, and headaches. Yet they also described conditions that usually affect people much later in life. I believe, this is me interjecting here, I believe these 
drugs really age people horrendously. I believe it ages their hormones. It actually ages everything. They, they just start to get a lot older looking. They had this 20-year-old from South Carolina. She was diagnosed with osteopenia, a thinning of the bones, while a 25-year-old from Pennsylvania has osteoporosis and a cracked spine. A 26-year-old in Massachusetts needed a total hip replacement. A 25-year-old in Wisconsin has chronic pain and degenerate disc disease. This person wanted to say, it just feels like I'm being punished for basically being experimented on when I was a child, said Derricott. I hate for a child to be put on Lupron, get to my age, and go through the things I have been through. In the interviews with women who took Lupron to, del to delay puberty or grow taller, most described depression and anxiety. Several recounted their struggles or a daughter's with suicidal urges. One mother of a Lupron patient described seizures. Um, such complaints have recently come under scrutiny at the FDA. Yeah, I'm sure they'll just hop right on it. Um, the FDA said, we are currently conducting a specific review of nervous system and psychiatric events in associate with the use of these drugs, including Lupron. Something about these drugs goes to the nervous system. That's why they all seem to get things like, I don't know, Parkinson's and all those things impacting the nervous system. So, um... And the FDA is also reviewing deadly seizures stemming from the pediatric use of Lupron. Isn't it amazing? They just hopped into using this. They are still using this drug today. This is the number one drug being used by the FDA. Let me scroll down here and see if I have any other more disgusting things to talk about. Let me see. Um... Some of them warned against it in 2009. Yeah, see how that goes? Controlled opposition. One side will race in and say this is bad, and the other side is let's get it out to more kids. So um, they said that um, Abby Vi, the company that now makes a drug, said Lupron safety studies were submitted to the FDA before it approved the medication in 1993. So I guess the FDA made a mistake. Maybe they didn't jot it down, right? The drug's label defines a condition as the onset of sexual characterizations before age eight in girls and nine in boys. So they're basically saying this should be used in children between eight and nine years old, okay? Um... Federal records show that the FDA officials who led the drug approval process two decades ago was troubled by two studies. Yeah, see how they always are troubled by these studies, right? After they're handing them out like popcorn and candy, now they're troubled. One study followed 22 children for just six months. He described the other study as a free-for-all review, which made it difficult to determine what dose was best for children of different sizes. Still, he suggested long-term tracking of the drug effects had and favored approval. They're the favored approval 
in the absence of any better approach. So I guess kids getting sterilized, their bones cracking, their teeth falling apart is the best approach that they should just go gun ahead on this deal, right? Yeah, they've been doing this stuff since um, this free-for-all approach since 1992. Yeah, and the United States is a leader in all this stuff. Isn't that a frightening thing? So Lupron, um, according to National Institute of Health, um, which lists the adverse effects, there are two serious side effects of Lupron that aren't mentioned in the drug makers 2010 study a bone disorder and a disease caused fracture this omission was picked up by this other of their people who said it looked puzzling yes it certainly appears puzzling to me also so yeah and they also uh, paid these people one of them made $157,000 for two years of traveling around talking about Lupron to all the doctors who attended conferences for free lunches and dinners to figure out how to kill children faster yes it's all about sterilizing all the kids isn't it and the interesting thing is this thing was first developed for boys Boys originally had more cases of body dysmorphia. Now it is completely flipped around and it is all the girls. So um, let me give you this one case here that I had. It was kind of interesting. Um, this was what I was talking about, the off-label use, okay, where doctors can take any pill, okay, or any drug, and decide that it can be used for any other thing that they deem still works, okay? So, this person, this girl named Brooklyn Harbin, said she received Lupron after she started her menstrual cycle at age 10. The chance to slow her puberty had passed, but she hoped to add a few inches to her four foot nine inch frame before her body matured any further. So they already knew that it was too late because she'd already started her menstrual. They try to get it before they, for girls, obviously before they start their menstrual cycle. So um, they were using this to add some height, I guess, because they just come up with these things, right? According to medical research, doctors prescribe the puberty blocking drug to short kids to essentially give them more time to get taller since puberty accumulates with the body's long bone growth ending. So, the end of puberty, the bones have stopped ending, right? Um, medical research have repeatedly warned against such off-label use. Yeah, warning is one thing. Why don't they just stop selling it, right? Let me get back here. A 2003 study concluded that some kids on drugs like Lupron develop osteopenia and lost too much bone density during a three-year course of treatments to justify the therapy. They said the lifetime risk of breaking a bone outweighed the reward of growing a bit taller. So they already figured out that it wasn't so great for the bone growing kids because it seems to me, not being a scientist here, that it depletes the bones not helps them so going on with this person that I started with before I got sidetracked here sorry 
Brooklyn Harbin. Um, she said that um, Harbin said she began getting shots of Lupron in 2006. That was after her period had already started, right? Soon afterwards, she said her physical problems began. So right after she gets the first shots, she's having problems. At 10 years old, after her 10th shot of Lupron, she said she collapsed during a Walmart shopping trip with her family. She could feel nothing from the knees down. Harbin said she spent six months in a wheelchair before she regained her strength and could walk again. She had to give up cheerleading, basketball, gymnastics because of her low bone density. By seventh grade, she has spent a month at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota learning to cope with cr chronic pain. Gee, it's seventh grade. FDA records obtained via special records request show that her pediatric specialist reported that a pharmacy erroneously gave her grandmother an extended release three-month formula of the medication instead of the monthly dose of the same strength. It remains unclear whether the dosing error impacted her, eh, okay, her health. So her grandmother picked her up a prescription and it was for a three-month dose and not a one-month. So they're saying that maybe that causes because they said that she was diagnosed at 11 with osteopenia, a thinning of the bones milder than osteoporosis. Although her bone density returned to a normal range at 16, her chronic pain has forced her to reconcile her dreams with less physical, with her physical limitations. She went on to say, I feel like little pieces of my life were taken away from me and no one wanted to own up to it, says Harbin, who is now 20 and lives in South Carolina. Suicide became very, very real for me. Yeah, so they're trying to say that this could have been from that other, um, the, the, one, the one dosage being too um, strong, but, you know, I'd have to argue that probably, yeah, sure, they could argue that all they want, but all of these people seem to get bone trouble, okay? So, um... Let me see what this one is saying. Um, they said they're inclined to just do something. Yeah, see, this is a crazy thing. They, they, they convince themselves. What happens is the kids get confused by being online for too much. Is frankly how all this happens. Online, being supervised, questioning their sexuality with strangers on social media. Then they start to have these issues. Parents come into the picture after the kids are already into full-blown body, you know, confusion. By then, it's almost too late. Parents throw up their hands. They take the kid to a therapist. Therapist, 99.9% .9 chance, is going to be transgender themselves. There is no screening. The first meeting with a therapist could get that kid onto testosterone. Kids could also declare themselves transgender and walk into any place like uh, Planned Parenthood and walk out with a prescription that very same day. So there's no gates or anything on any of this stuff. It's really just uh, full speed ahead. Um, so yeah, some researchers are saying don't give it to kids, but you know, this is just all just insanity, right? Um, I think I have one more thing down here before I'll close off this piece. So yeah, this is the um, 
this is the, what the future is for sterilizing girls, right? Getting them all to hate their own bodies. They had to get everybody to hate their own bodies. Then they go to all these long-term solutions. And it's like, it's just crazy. It's like, you know, all these ads. It's like, want to look 10 years younger? Hey, what about, how about looking like you should look, right? I hate to get um, simplistic here. So complications relating to the drug's use also include malignant tumors, cardiovascular events, such as heart attacks and blood clots, suicidal behavior, and other psychological disorders, brittle bones and painful joints, and sterility. And yes, and they are still being handed out like candy and popcorn to children, and they say that, well, we're going to put them on them to make sure that, you know, if they decide to, um, if they decide they're really another sex, you know, we don't want them to have a big male body if they're really a girl and this kind of stuff. And imagine this, you're taking a confused child to these people. They put them on massive hormones and drugs, which cripple their bones, give them depression, push them towards suicide. And another kicker in all of this, all of these children are also on all the other protocol. They're all on antidepressants. They're all on, you know, mood anxiety, mood swing pills. Trust me, I, I watch all these kids. They're all on these hormones plus all these other anxiety things. And they act like putting them on this stuff will keep them from committing suicide. Well, this stuff actually kind of drives them towards suicide. But, you know, we all need to learn to think for ourselves. There is a war on women and children, and getting everybody sterile seems to be the common thing that they're after here. I wander off here let me talk a little bit about one of the primary uses for this medication actually what they say is while no cure exists for pedophilia limited treatments do exist European doctors introduced oral hormonal treatments such as estrogen pills in the 1940s well, in the 1960s, a Dr. John Money of John Hopkins began to prescribe mexidoprexigen, the base drug in the commonly used contraceptive. So they used a contraceptive to what they called chemically castrate pedophiles and other sexual deviants. This was in 1990s. Recently, Asian countries have adopted these techniques. Um, the STAR reports that under new regulations by the Indonesian government, those who commit sexual violence against children will be punished with chemical castration in addition to their prison and house arrest sentencing. Prior to these new Indonesian regulations, Korea enacted chemical castration laws, while India has reportedly drafted, though not yet passed, legislation as well. And I don't know, this was as of a few years ago, so they're passing legislation for all of this stuff. Um, 
it says overall hormonal treatments appear appear to be effective these things don't really have studies they just seem to appear to be good okay in 1991 the john hopkins studies less than 10 percent of 626 chemically castrated patients had committed sexual offenses five years after treatment in korea a study was done and 38 chemically castrated patients discovered reduction in frequency and intensity of sexual drive so yeah it sounds to me like this is like still being um well tested right tested while it's being used by people so this is the same drug they are giving children to so-called pause their puberty the medication called lupron then there's a question i had of what does chemical castration feel like there's this renee sorrento a boston university forensic psychiatrist explained that lupron reduces the sex drive and mitigates deviant desires while the feelings remain they're less obsessive sorrentino who treats convicted pedophiles rapists in her Boston clinic likens Lupron's effects to the volume being lowered on a radio. One of her patients, a sex addict, told New York Magazine, before I went on Lupron, I was thinking about having sex with a prostitute over 30 times a day. After six months, I would only have the thoughts a few times a day. Along with less mental noise, Patients may also experience side effects, including weight gain, hair loss, and development of breasts. Lupron may also lead to osteoporosis in men. Despite side effects and health risks, Sorotino's patients tell her they prefer shots of medication to feeling unwanted, uninvited urges, and in their own words, living in a dark place, so the trade-off is um, deadly drugs that will have severe complications seem to be better to be used for this. And this is the same drug that is approved to be given to children to get them to pause their sexuality. There is no pausing of their sexuality. What this does is it destroys their ability to ever have any kind of sexuality. It seems to me it drums down their sexual, you know, abilities. It drums down their ability to long-term even have bones that function in their bodies. Sounds to me like Lupron is a fairly dangerous drug. But don't listen to me. Go look for yourself. side effects of Lupron. I said common side effects, okay, include redness, burning, bruising at the injection site, hot flashes, increased sweating, night sweats, tiredness, headache, upset stomach, nausea, diarrhea,
impotence, testicular shrinkage, constipation, stomach pain, breast swelling or tenderness, acne, joint muscle aches or pain, trouble sleeping, insomnia, reduced sexual interest, vaginal discomfort, itching and discharge, vaginal bleeding, swelling of the ankles and feet, increased urination at night, dizziness, breakthrough bleeding in a female child during the first two months of Lupron treatment, weakness, chills, clammy skin, skin redness, itchy, scaling, testicular pain, impotence, impotence, excuse me, depression or memory problems. This is some of the, these are, excuse me, some of the common side effects of this medication that is being given to children. And it is also known as, it was patented in 1973. It was approved for medical use in the United States in 1985. It is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. And that is the drug called Lupron, L-U-P-R-O-N. Okay, now is the time to say goodbye until we meet again. I will be closing this out with just a couple comments here. When you take a look at those um, Wolf's Angel marks, they also used that Iron Cross during the Nazi era in um, during World War II. That Iron Cross looks a lot like the Malta Cross, M-A-L-T-A. The Queen and them give the Malta Cross to just about all of their favorite people. So, and they all seem to have those same semblances of, you know, originating out of Germany is what I'm talking about here. So, one thing in the news this week that I'd like to, or the last few weeks I'd like to address briefly here is that there have been allegations that Putin has some sort of cancer and also um, Parkinson's disease because they say that during some meetings he was holding his hands to keep his hands from shaking. They also claimed that Hitler had Parkinson's and uh, because I watched all the World War II documentaries, um, they showed some clips of Hitler with his hand behind his back and he was holding his other hand to keep it from shaking. So there were allegations that Hitler had Parkinson's. Now the hormones give them these neurological diseases. So what I'm wondering about now, because now that we know that Hitler played uh, was played by Walt Disney, did Disney have Parkinson's? I don't know, couldn't find it, but I didn't spend all day looking either. So if Hitler had Parkinson's, that would mean that um, Walt Disney probably had Parkinson's also, right? Just by being the same person. 
So you might want to check the website under Hiding in Plain Sight. That's where I'm putting the shows that you want to use as your reference materials because people have done some interesting work. And what we're doing is Archie is making a copy of any videos we post there just so that then we have them forever. Because when I'm doing research, I'm constantly running into things that says video not available. So if we make our own copies, that way they will stay there. People have done some interesting work. Like there's this theory, you know, do airplanes really need fuel? I don't know. Looks to me like maybe not, right? Um, so whatever I'm finding that we want to capture, we're putting over there. So I won't necessarily always tell you when we update a file there just because I won't. <laughs> so you might check there and use that as your reference. If you could just learn the chins and those wigs, you'd come a long way to recognizing them. And also what I will be covering next, I keep wanting to get to the mental gymnastics, you know, how they came up with um, communism and all of this stuff. That's very interesting stuff. But before I get to that, I probably have to explain there's this saying that goes around that says something like, you will own nothing and you will be happy. Well, in fact, in fact, you do own nothing absolutely nothing okay there's this saying it goes whoever owns the soil owns all the way to the heavens and to the depths of the earth yes in fact there is a big trick laid out in the very beginning of this country meaning the united states of america so i would be very careful about holding u.s dollars because the trick was made back then that this country is really run by the small group of them and likely out of the United Kingdom. And that's all I'm going to say for now is that be very careful out there and be safe whatever you go. Cut out so much social media. See what enters into your own brain. Our creator doesn't give a few of us information. All of us can have the information that I'm finding. What does it take? Well, for starters, cut out some of the noise in your own head and listen. What does your own inner voice say to you? I would really pay attention to that voice. You're going to need it here in the future. So be safe out there. Goodbye for now. down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sewing on a fiddle and playing it hot and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, boy, let me tell you what. I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too. And if you'd care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now you play pretty good fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. I bet a fiddle of gold against your soul because I think I'm better than you. The boy said, my name's Johnny, and it might be a sin, but I'll take your bet you're going to regret, because I'm the best as ever been. Johnny, rising up your bow and play your fiddle hard, because hell's broke loose in Georgia and the devil deals the cards. And if you win, you get this shiny fiddle made of gold, but if you lose, the devil gets your soul.
opened up his case and he said, I'll start this show. And fire flew from his fingertips as he rosined up his bow. And he pulled the bow across the strings and it made an evil hiss. And then a band of demons joined in and it sounded something like this. Johnny said, well, you're pretty good, old son, but sit down in that chair right there and let me show you how it's done. Fire on the mountain, run, boys, run. The devil's in the house of the rising sun. Chicken in the bread pan, picking out dough. Granny, does your dog bite, no child, no. his head because he knew that he'd been beat and he laid that golden fiddle on the ground at Johnny's feet Johnny said devil just come on back if you ever want to try again I done told you once you son of a bitch I'm the best as ever been he played found a mountain run boy run devil's in the house of the rising sun the 